In the dark shadows, in the white cold, fearlessly we search for knowledge new and old. We drink the strong spirits and read the ancient tomes. The order of the Abracast. We are the brave and the bold. The Gnostics were confronted with an image of a monotheistic god in the Old Testament. And adaptations of that image in the New Testament, who is often capricious, wrathful, vengeful, and unjust. It was easy to conclude from this apparently flawed god created a world in his own flawed image. The Gnostics asked the great question, is this flawed creator truly the ultimate true and good God, or is he a lesser deity who is either ignorant of a power beyond himself, or is conscious of a divine authority superior to himself but decides to usurp the position of the highest deity? The Gnostics answered that this creator is obviously not the true ultimate god, but is rather a demiurgos, a secondary deity. The demiurge is the originator of evil and imperfection in the world. Thus, the apparent blasphemy of attributing the world's evils to the creator is revealed as originating in the Gnostics' confrontation with a monotheistic god. This is a excerpt passage from Gnosticism, a new light in the ancient traditions of inter-knowing um, by Stephen A. Heller. The Abracast, Occult, History, Conspiracy, and Violence. Hey, welcome everybody. We're uh, recording on the flawed material plane here, created by the blind idiot god Yaldaboath. This is the Abercast, and I am John Towers. This evening, we're going to start off by reading this uh, thing about Yaldaboath, the lion-headed Yaldaboath by Stephen A. Davies. It's interesting, I found this thing here. This was written during a summer seminar funded by the National Endowments for the Humanities, to which the author wishes to express his gratitude. Steve A.N.L. Davies is an assistant professor of theology, the College uh, Misericordia, Dallas, Pennsylvania. So that's what the featured article is here this evening. I don't know how fast this is going to go, so we might do something. We might tack something different on the end here. We'll see how it goes. You know, we got to stay agile. We got to stay loose and flexible. 
So let me take this moment to thank my Patreon and subscribe star folks. If you are a Patreon person and you haven't got my many messages, check your Patreon stuff. Patreon for the show is about to go away. Has There's many reasons that this is happening, but um, I don't want anyone to be taken uh, back. It's uh, going to close it off at the beginning of next year. All right, so... Um, do I have anything else? Oh, uh, yeah. So there's a Yaldo Boath t-shirt. If you go to abracast.com, go to the storefront t-shirts and stuff, you could find this pretty sweet-ass illustration I did of um, this uh, this Demiurge kind of character. It's a sweet t-shirt if you're interested in such a thing. Also, while you're in the storefront, hit up the tarot cards. Check out uh, comic books and graphic novels, too. I got you covered for Saturnalia, I don't know, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, Christmas, whatever whatever it is that you're celebrating this season, the Ebercast storefront uh, has got you covered. Ooh. I don't know, is there anything else I want to talk about? Uh, Instagram, on my, inst- if you find me on Instagram, I've been doing, I, I did a a sigil template and I've been posting some funny, I've been posting a funny, um, some fun, uh, sigils. I did a, where is it at here? Uh, I did a, a, a fuck off. <laughs> I did a fuck off sigil. It's pretty fun. I'm thinking about actually, uh, art, art producing that and putting it on, putting it on a t-shirt. So you want to check it out. Uh, the links in the, the show notes there. All right. I got to put this down, man. I'm getting ready. Stephen L Davies, the lion headed Yaldaboeth feature topic link. If you go to abercast.com, hit the feature topic link. You can quickly find all of the Gnosticism episodes we have done right there. If you want to, um, refer back. Um, to some of these episodes, or if you just want to discover them for the first time, baby, hit me up, hit me up there. Feature topic link. Several passages in the Nag Hammadi codices state that the chief deity of this unhappy world, Yaldoboath, has the head of a lion. Researchers in Gnosticism have concluded that despite a wide variety of Syncretistic influences, Gnostic mythology primarily stems from Judaism. In Gnosticism, Jewish myth is accepted as mythologically valid, even though it appears in the Torah in inverted form. Thus, the Gnostic demythalization of Torah took the form of reversion, that is, reading for Yahweh, the demonic chief archon and demiurge Yaldaboeth, reading for the serpent in Eden, a new source of knowledge, etc. Yahweh stood up on his head because Yaldaboeth, the hypostasis of the archons, which we just recently did in this episode of the hypostasis of the archons, it reports that what she, this is Sophia, 
has created became a product in the matter like an aborted fetus. And it assumed a plastic form molded out of shadow and became an arrogant beast resembling a lion. It was androgynous, as I've already said, because it was from matter that it derived. Opening its eyes, he saw vast quantities of matter without limit. And he became arrogant, saying, It is I who am God, and there is no other apart from me. This is my this is the devil card in my tarot in my deck of tarot cards, by the way. I didn't make the devil into Yaldaboeth, but it is a um it is a card depicting um some of the problems with them. I'll just say it that way. Some of the problems with the material world, where did this Leonocephalic lion headed <laughs> Yahweh come from? At the least he derives from a culture, which is permeated with Jewish text and language. Where was this curious, estranged Jewish culture? The fact that Yalda Boath is so often said to be lion-headed may provide a clue to his origins. Pistis Sophia claims that there existed an archon with a lion face in the chaos, whose one half was fire and the other was a darkness named Yalda Boath from whom I have spoken to you many times. And in this document from the Nag Hammadi called on the origin of the world, it is said we've done on the origin of the world recently too. The ruler Yaldaboath is ignorant of his power of pistis. He did not see her face, but the likeness which spoke with him and he saw in the water. And from that voice, he called himself Yaldaboath. But the perfect ones called him Ariel because he was a lion likeness. Yaldaboeth in the Apocryphon of St. John, we have not done this yet, but it is in my folder, is said to be in the form of a lion faced serpent. Oregon, I believe this is Oregon from Alexand Alexandria, in Contra. Kelsium quotes an Ophite document in which Yaldaboeth has the appearance of a lion and is said to be identified with the Phaeon, Phaeon star in Ophite diagram in Oregon's possessions depict Yaldaboeth in lion, lionine form. There are no other figures in Gnostic mythology with such a clear and constant iconographic referent. Well, uh, I mean, there's Abracax. Hmm. Hmm. There's a, not the Gnostic figure of Abracax, who's got a pretty consistent, he's got a pretty consistent, um, how do they say it? Iconographic referent. He's a, uh, he's got a rooster head and wings and then, um, legs of snakes. He's got two giant snakes for legs and he's usually carrying a Greek shield and sometimes like a, like a flail or like a cat of, um, nine tails. 
how do you know so much about this cat named Abracax? <laughs> While Yaldaboeth is mythologically an inversion of the Jewish Yahweh, there is only one use of the term Yave. That's Y-A-V. In the entire Nag Hammadi corpus, and this occurs in the Apocryphon of John. Again, the chief archon seduced her and he begot her two sons in the first and the second are Elohim and Yave. Elohim has a bear face and Yave has a cat face. And one is righteous and the other is unrighteous. Yave, he set over the fire and the wind and Elohim. He set over the water and the earth. Both in verse of Yahweh, Yaldoboeth, and the supposed son of Yaldoboeth, Yave, who have the heads of felines. It does not seem that the writers of the text we possess had any clear notion of the origin of the Jesus, they're going to make me do this again. <laughs> the origin of their Leontocephaline. Uh, Leontocephaline. It just means lion headed. I mean, I understand the word. <laughs> I just can't say it. Imagery. The lion headed imagery. The mention of the Phaethon occurs only in Oregon's report and may simply be an opinion. The mention of Ariel occurs only this once in the Nag Hammadi corpus. There does not appear at first to be any possible Jewish source for the lion-headed Yaldaboath slash Yave. But I believe a case can be made that in at least one place in the ancient world where uh, there were Jews cut off from both the mainstream Judaism of the Jerusalem temple and from the rabbinical movement who might have conceived of a lion-headed god. Sometime around the year uh, 145 BC, the priest general named Onius led a substantial number of Jewish people and soldiers into Egypt in a city site given to them by Ptolemy Philomiotur. He established a temple and until it was destroyed on the orders of Vespensinia, sacrifices were offered there to Yahweh by the Jewish priests. Reports from this temple were very sketchy. Neither the rabbis nor the Jerusalem authorities nor apparently the Jews of Alexandria recognized the temple right to exist. It is not mentioned by Hellenistic Jewish authors other than Josephus. The Talmud views it unfavorably. Therefore, it is virtually impossible to say anything about the climate of thought at Oenaeus' temple. We know almost nothing of it but its location, and yet that single bit of knowledge may be very significant. This whole idea of, like, the Old Testament God being the demiurge or whatever. This gives this gets the Gnostics grief all the time. It's uh, it's misrepresented or misunderstood as um, a bent, uh, like an anti-Semitic bent. 
there existed a fair sized band of Jewish people cut off from mainstream Judaism. Their cult rejected as inauthentic who were located in an Egyptian town known in the Greek as Leontopolis. Leontopolis. This town This town was called by the Egyptians the town of Bubastis of the fields. Bubastis is a, a cat is a cat god which is another name for the goddess Sekhmet. This is all, I mean, you could just watch Black Panther and learn all <laughs> or Civil War, rather. Bubastis of the Field, which is another name for the goddess Sekhmet. Oenaeus, according to Josephus, located his temple at the site of the decayed temple to Sekhmet, despite the fact that this place was so unclean and so full of sacred animals. Leontopolis has been excavated archaeologically, and although the remains are few, they seem to prove that during this period of Jewish occupation, two cults existed in the town. The new Jewish temple cult and the old cult of the goddess Sekhmet. One uh, Brugish Bay did some cursory exploration of the site and reported finding the fragments of statues of cat-headed Bost, again, Black Panther, <laughs> which had been brought from the Temple of Mutt at Thebes. These fragments, along with other valuable materials, had vanished by the time of Naville's uh, excavation of this site. The excavation by Flinders, Petrie, followed that of Naville, both, both Naville and Petrie, and another excavator named Griffith, agree that the site was the Temple of Oenaeus. The ancient Jewish cemetery was found nearby. Petri believed that on the basis of his own excavations, he could recreate a fair model of the Jewish temple structure itself. It is, as Josephus reports, a poor copy of the Jerusalem temple. It is also, as he reports, the site of the cult of Bubastis of the fields, the goddess Sekhmet. Griffith found there a bronze cat-headed image of Bast and three or four amulets of Sekhmet. In this excavation of Tel El, oh my God, <laughs> excavations of Tel El Yul, e, uh, Tell El Yehid Uaya, the present name of the place Petrie reports. Discovery of the stone headed shrine of the lion headed goddess. And in the ruins of the Egyptian quarter, this goddess is Sekhmet. Sekhmet is a violent, dangerous lion faced deity. She is sometimes merged, but usually contrasted with cat-headed bast for Sekhmet represented the destructive heat of the sun and was warlike goddess a fiery one emitting flames against the enemy Sekhmet viewed the viewed dire la violente la Pusante, 
the violent cat, I think. The dire violent cat. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's my interpretation of, of that. The dire violent pussy. <laughs> Ellie. Dietrich Les Enemies Mayas Auzi Le Homes Homes Natonment Dons La Legend de Le Orel de Bray. Sekhmet may have represented the force of the sun in the desert and the dry times of year and the destructive anti human aspect of the heavens. Gnosticism arose in a place where persons lived who were almost obsessively concerned with Jewish scripture and yet were opposed to it. And it stands written in the Torah. Where did these Jews come from? Arthur H. Armstrong in his article Gnosis in Greek Philosophy guesses and admits that he is only speculating that perhaps it might be plausible to look for the origins of Gnosticism among the people forcibly Judaized by John Harankis in Astrobulos in the 2nd century BC, the Uturians or Paraeans. He is looking, in short, for a group of Jews with reason to be opposed to or alienated from Judaism. Gnosticism seems to have come from such an estranged Jewish group or from non-Jews surrounded by a Jewish culture. It might be plausible to look for such persons in the Leontopolis and find them dwelling in a city wherein the cult of the lion-headed goddess, fiery, dangerous Sekhmet, was well established. The origin of the lion-headed Yaldaboath may be this Liantopolis. On the other hand, Yaldaboath might be thought to derive from the Roman cult of Mithra, wherein a lion-headed personage seems to have held a prominent position. However, leaving aside the chronological difficulties involved in such a notion of derivation that the lion-headed figure in Mithraism uh, was possessed of certain features, always absent from the description in the myth of Yaldaboath, he frequently has, for instance, the feet of a bird. And Bronchii points out that it is impossible to consider the key attribute of Mithraic monuments properly without taking into consideration the entire topology of the lion-headed form for which the keys are essential. In every statue of the Mithraic lion-headed form in Mithraic human-headed variants on this motif... On various magical gems and amulets possibly related to this motif, the lion-headed personage holds keys. But, however, Yaldoboath never does. The Mithraic lion-headed form itself may derive from Egypt. Vera Marzin writes, H. Pedizoni 
following a th- H. Petazzoni following a theory already proposed by G. Zorga in 1808 demonstrated that this iconography of the first group, the classic Mithraic Lyantocephalines wrapped with serpents. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, are in particular are of a complete stature from Castel Gandolfo, who has derived from the Egyptian art and more particularly from the composite Bess figure. The theory still requires confirmation by further extensive studies, but Vermersen indicates that he thinks it is a very useful suggestion. Neither Iran nor Egypt alone formed a cult of the lion-headed god in Mithraism, with the Hellenistic age in general, for which Egypt was a major component, formed a concrete representation of an abstract idea of eternity. So before I go any further here, I still do have a little bit to go, but, uh, I have to bring up this thing cause I wrote a book about it. I wrote a book about it and here it goes. So there's this idea of astrological procession. This is a thing of deep time where you're dealing with whatever sort of what it, whichever constellation uh, is at a certain point in the sky or whatever. And this has to do with like that constellation rules that age. So in my book, the ages um, we go through each chapter is kind of like one of these ages. It's roughly like 2,500 years or something like something like that. And the Leonian age is one of these ages. It's, it's when Leo was sort of a prominent, you know, d- dominated uh, our, our night, our night sky. Yeah. So in, my graphic novel, The Ages, we actually start off in the Lyonian age. Um, and it's, it's classic because (laughs) I stumbled backwards into this, but, um, I, I, I'm just going to read this passage real quick. This is, this is, uh, from the book of Job where Job's talking to God and, and God is bragging about killing this creature. Um, and it was, so here it goes. This is the, it's the first line in the whole fucking book. It was the dawn of the Lyonian age in this new, in this new world still on the edge of chaos as it rumbled and settled into place. The oceans raged and the sky was on fire and the creator God, Yaldoboeth faced the first of the sacred mistakes somewhere during the work of creation, maybe in the divine mathematics, the character, the careful design or the conjuring summoning and molding of matter itself, the willing of gravity somewhere in the celestial process of creation. There was a miscalculation. God hadn't yet created life. However, he stood colossal swirling a primordial raging ocean, looking at an impossible defiant living beast. The creature lurched out of the sea, titanic and angry, scales like battle-scarred shields interlocking 
down its back, sulfur smoke flame pouring from its mouth and nostrils and its many eyes black as the recently forgotten damnable void along tentacles and spiny fins twitching and lashing and flailing sharp barbs and hooks and a massive beak that was as sharp and fast as lightning. Its massive body glistening with the waters of these new oceans and the living beast called Leviathan stands facing Yaldaboeth. Until that moment, the creator god Yaldaboeth had only ever felt the emotions of loneliness and fear. These are the emotions, in fact, that drove him to work to create this world. This work made him feel great pride. However, beholding this beast Leviathan, in that blasted moment, the creator god felt utter terror. Maybe this terrifying creature was left over from what was before Yaldaboath awoke and began his work beholding Leviathan's lifeless black eyes, a titanic warlike body slicked with mucus and slime god then felt disgust and that disgust turned into hatred divine hatred bathed in the black light of the strange eclipse the two titanic creatures moved forward towards each other smoke and fire pulled poured forth from leviathan's beak as he screeched and he hissed and the creator god, Yaldaboeth, yelling and running forward knee-deep in the swirling new sea, moving towards the impossible beast, cosmically massive, rippling muscles grabbed at Leviathan and slimy, hooked and barbed tentacles entangled and embraced God in this cosmic battle. Has been joined and there was no one to witness it. It would soon be the age of cancer, the time of men and angels, and then the age of Gemini, an age of the brothers. So the prologue starts in the Leonian age, and we skip cancer, and then chapter one starts with Gemini, uh, Cain, Cain and Abel. And then uh, Taurus, which is like uh, World War Zero or the War of the Nine Kings after. And then uh, Aries, this is Exodus. So each one of these constellations that mark the, these, um, the procession of these ages are reflected in the stories that we tell. So in, so in this age of Aries would be the time of Moses and Moses is often depicted with like Ram's horns and, um, you know, the walls of Jericho were busted down by, you know, blowing the, the, the Ram's horns and, um, uh, and then Pisces, uh, in, uh, in Jesus's time, he tells his disciples to go and find a man. No, no, no. Uh, Pisces would be the time of Jesus. And that's why he recruited fishermen. And that's why he, uh, you know, produced 
you know, fish to feed the crowd. And, you know, this is why the Jesus fish, um, is a thing, but, uh, in the, in the age of Pisces with a Jesus, he tells his, uh, apostles or his disciples he says go into the town and find a man carrying water and follow him to his house this is jesus telling telling them like the age of aquarius is, is coming you know and that's kind of where we are uh now we're in the age age of aquarius but um yeah so you know when they're talking about this light this lion-headed Yaldoboath, I think that there might be something to be said, you know, um, as I, as I said in my book, the ages that the, the, the eight, the Lionian age, the age of Leo in the per, in the procession of ages is the age of God, or in this case, Yaldoboath. And maybe that's one of the reasons this cat's running around with a fucking lion head. All right, back to this article. I'm sorry for the thing. Huge procession of the age geek. <laughs> the figure of Yaldabaoth does not, of course, represent eternity and Gnosticism. The lion-headed personages of Mithraism is the icon most similar to Yaldabaoth in the Roman world. However, in key respects to the iconogra iconography iconography differs conceptually the two are distinct and it is quite possible that Yaldabaoth pre-existed the Mithric Mithraic deity one might even wish to argue that Sekhmet of Egypt provided an orgroned for the Mithric lion-headed figure as well as for Yaldabaoth the, um, the origin of the lion-headed Yaldabaoth cannot be found in Mithraism and has context in Jewish texts and myths. In this significant passage in the Apocryphon of John, Yaldabaoth is said to be the form of the lion-faced serpent. In this ancient world, another such lion-faced serpent was known as Sekhmet Sur Uin Statuet de Basse. Apaqua in Naples, la desi sekmet est representi sus la forum duin ureus the cobra dresse a tet de lion. In another statue, sekmet is not simply shown as a lion headed on a serpent body, but as a lion body holding erect serpents in her hand. Erect serpents. Fuck yeah, in her hands. I cannot propose that all Gnosticism derives from members of the community around Oneus's temple in Lyontopolis. However, there lived in Lyontopolis Jews apart from the rabbinical or the Alexandrian or the Palestinian Judaism with an active cult of Yahweh besides the cult of Sekhmet. If these Jews, or for whatever reason, began to invert their own mythology and conceive Yahweh as an oppressive warlike deity, they had 
next door to them a cult and concept of deity as oppressive and warlike and as dangerous, one which represented the lion-headed form, one which could be represented as a lion-faced serpent. It seems to be a fair and interesting hypothesis that the cat-headed Yave and the lion-headed Yaldaboath receive feline form from the estranged Jews in Leontopolis, and who saw everywhere around them feline-headed deities. <laughs> Their very temple was built on a decayed temple of Sekhmet. I'm not here insisting on Liontopian origins for Gnosticism. We have at present far too little data for any such instance, but in, uh, but the lion, liontocephalic <laughs> Yaldoboath and the cat-headed Yave may well have been formed there and have dwelt there unhappily until the destruction of the town of the Vespian's army. Those uh, lion-headed forms may have left their desert to join the stream of Gnostic syncretistic influences. So there's something else. I gotta, I gotta scramble for another book real fast. So I ran into this other thing uh, for another project I was doing, but it fits all this lion-headed business fits it. So I just need to talk about it real quick so um god i didn't think i was gonna have to do this okay so um if you go to the feature topic link and go to um the goetia i think it's called or maybe the books of solomon we did a bunch of episodes on the books of solomon the book uh where i'm just busting into the lesser book of Solomon here. So we've talked about Bereth on the show. Bereth is a demon that's uh, in the lesser book of Solomon that you're able to like summon or whatever, but he was the red, he is the red horse. Um, the red horseman. Uh, he's, you know, a soldier. He's got a, a sword. He's dressed in red and, and he's on a red horse. This is Bereth, but for something I'm going to spring on you guys, hopefully in a few weeks, um, I found the pale, the a demon associated with the, the pale horse. And let's see. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Here it is. He is the 43rd demon in the lesser key of Solomon. And his name is Sabinok. Uh, as King Solomon commanded them into the vessel of brass is called Sabinok or Savnok. He is a marquee, mighty, great, and strong, appearing in the form of an armed soldier. Wait for it. Wait for it. With a lion's head, riding on a paled color horse. His office is to build high towers and castles and cities and to furnish them with armor, etc. Also, he can afflict men for many days with wounds and sores. You get it? You see where I'm going rotten and full of worms. He gives good familiars at the request of the exorcist. That's the wizard who uh, summons him and he commandeth 50 legions of spirits and his seal is this. And he's got this cool, this cool sigil. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting. It's just an interesting synchronicity that uh, I've been, you 
<laughs> I've been, um, I stumbled upon this guy for a project I'm working on and I didn't even know that he had a lion head. I was interested because he's kind of like the rider on the, the pale horse with the disease, you know? And then he's also in charge of like building defense defenses and all this, but he's also bringing, he's bringing sores and the plague and he's putting worms in the fuck, putting fucking worms in the people. Um, so I thought that since I just made that connection while I was reading all this Yaldo Boeth stuff that maybe I should bring up Sabnock as well. Another lion headed, another one of these lion headed figures. Learn more at abracast.com. Get bonus content by signing up for the mailing list. All right, I found this next thing. Um, I can't pronounce who wrote it or where it comes from. Um, I believe it was Polish, and we I had to get it. Uh, I had to find a translated version, so it might be a little bit spotty, but here it is. Demiurge, Yaldaboath, its genesis, essence, and function in Gnosticism, Sethism, and the basis of the Apocrypha of John. I believe this is by a guy named Lukacs Kozilka. I forgive you, bro. I, I forgive me, bro. Please. I'm reading this in, um, I wanted to include it, uh, in all seriousness. So I, I apologize for my lack of the Polish language. One of the most important proposals concerning the origin of Gnosticism and Sethism is the reference to its Jewish roots. Uh, there is also a statement that Gnosticism is on the edge or the fringes of Judaism. It can be said with full conviction that the origin of this movement is an important issue that still awaits unequivocal solutions. If at all possible, which is questioned by some researchers, the awareness of the Sethian movement uh, has definitely appeared in science much less. Apart from a few publications, this topic is rather a virgin land in the Polish history of the religion. Of course, Sethism frequently appears as one of the elements of the Gnostic movement. This article is an attempt to fill in the gap with the presentation of Sethian, Sethian's thoughts. It is important to show the views of Sethians to indicate uh, the distinguished features of this trend. The aim is to study, this study is to capture how the presence of the Demiurge Yaldaboath in the Nag Hammadi library texts on the example of the Apocrypha of John influences the understanding of the religious trends of the decline of antiquity. Gnosticism and Gnosis definition difficulties. Sethian identifies himself unequivocally with the Gnostics, which in turn forces a reference to the source term, which is Gnosticism. Gnosis and Gnosticism have made a career in the history of science. However, it is worthy in, in science. I don't know if this translation is holding up. However, it is worth noting immediately that there is a time gap between two threads. Gnosticism's relatively modern concept it was first used in the sense in the 17th century. 
by Henry Moore, who derived it from a Greek term for a member of a group called Nastikos. However, the modern meaning of the word differs from 17th century pattern. H. Moore included all Christian heretics in this concept, which is why it's wide and has all different kinds of cosmogonies and mythologies. Especially in the Sethian vision at the outset, there are two questions that concern genesis of this phenomenon and above all the very scope of Sethianism. So what is Sethianism? It's a definition um, of heresiologists and treatises. Many of the texts found in the Nag Hammadi texts are known as Sethian. We are looking for confirmation on the legitimacy of speaking about Sethism today. One should refer to ancient sources among those important informants are Hippolyte Rizminsky, it's the so-called Pseudo-Tertullian and Epiphanius of Salamius. Salamius? Uh, in Refuto Onium Harrisum, Hippolytus of Rome mentions the existence of a system based on the interactions of principles of light, spirit, and darkness. However, quite incorrectly, he points out the sources of knowledge about the Sethians in a paraphrase of Set, where Set, he is only mentioned once as the son of Adam and does not play any more important role in the Hippolytian variant of Sethism. In turn, the so-called pseudo-Tertullian does not accept the tradition of Hippolytus. In his performance, Set begins to play not only an important but even unique role, which is more... Uh, consistent with the name of this Gnostic group for many researchers, this feeling of being the offspring of Set is one of the hallmarks of this group. The second is a strong foundation for mythological speculation with reoccurring patterns and mythological characters both biblical and Hellenistic. Another important heresiologist who has raised this subject of Sethian ideology is the guy, this dude from Salamius. He refers to his direct encounter with the Sethians, possibly in Egypt, the third part of the Panorion. He writes that the Sethians derive themselves from Set, uh, the son of Adam, uh, and what is more, they see him as a person of a Jesus. It may be briefly stated that the commentators of ancient heresies have little to say about Sethians. They basically said nothing about their ethics, organization, or liturgical life. This allows conclusions to be drawn. The Sethian sect is obvious. These writers point directly to the texts that belong to the canon. The second difficulty issued is the established which texts can and certainly be included in Sethian canon. A very clear way of qualifying these texts were from blah blah blah. Yaldoboath etymology. The main starting point for analyzing the presence of the Demiurge Yaldoboath in literature is examining the etymology of his name. The Gnostic text, the form Yaldoboath, appears most often, less frequently. It appears Jaldoboath uh, and Altoboath. Mm. He doesn't mention it, but there's also an Iaboath uh, version is older. Um, blah, blah, blah. 
just skipping ahead here, just for time, bros, is uh, derived from on the basis of the text of Belisarius Gnosticus. He contends that this term comes from the Hebrew, quote, God of desires, unquote, and assigns a newer version of the ruler of the God of desires. Many opinions have arisen about the name of Yaldabaoth. One of the older etymologies says that uh, it has a source in Hebrew, the sons of chaos. It consists of the root jlid, which is to give birth, and boath, which has the same root as the biblical bohu. Uh, bohu, uh, um, it corresponds to the Greek. This opinion appears more often according to other personal, the tohu and the bohu is like uh the Jew is like a Jewish term for like, uh, like a void, like des like a chaos. It's void and chaos. I believe the source is Yalda Bosch. That is the parent of shame. Uh, wow. Yalda Bosch, the parent of shame in turn, uh, it's quoted, Grant leans towards the idea that the biblical name of God appears as Yahweh, Ehoe, Zeboe, uh, as a result of the inflectional changes known in Aramaic. The following Yaldol El Zeboeth, Grant also points to the phenomenon noticed in the Septuagint, where Zeboeth is spelled Diboath, so Yah El Diboath would consistently appear. Yaldil Boath. There it is. Nevertheless, Shoem strongly disagrees with these propositions according to those who promote them, searching for etymology of Yaldil Boath among words that do not exist in the space of the Hebrew language and in Aramaic. Among. Uh, among okay. I think we get the picture. Uh, John, the Apocrypha of John, John's Apocrypha is a work of importance, cannot be overestimated in knowing the great traditions of late antiquity, starting with the view of creation of the world in the Bible, ending with the Platonic thought. It also significantly shed light on the intellectual and doctrinal work of Christianity. The Apocrypha remained unknown for a long time, and it turned out to be a turning point publication in the synopsis of M. Waddlestein and F. Weiss, showing four versions of the text of the Apocrypha. This treaty is complex in the beginning. There is commentary on the biblical text, which can be called a midrash. Besides, there are revelatory dialogue between a Jesus and the disciple John. The hymn, the reference to the Jewish tradition, is definitely dominant, but the Christian layer is also significant, which results in the heterogeneity, the heterogeneity of the text and its interpretation. Understanding is additionally hampered by the existence of four editorial offices. Ugh. Okay, set the in cosmo. <laughs> I'm skipping ahead. <laughs> it is important to connect the understanding in the context of Yaldoboath's characteristics and the characteristic role of Yaldoboath. Set the in cosmogony and Yaldoboath. Genesis, it has already been mentioned. 
that a commentary on the first chapters of Genesis is essentially a part of John's revelations. But the commentary takes a special form. He replied, it is not, Mo- it is not what Moses wrote, but how you heard it. It is not what Moses wrote and how you heard it. These words perfectly reflect on the Judaic Orthodox vision of the creation of the world is dealt with. Moses and the meaning of the first chapters of Genesis read the Sethians heterodoxically. After an in-depth study, it turns out that the text of John's Apocrypha strongly refers to biblical texts. This becomes so significant in the treaties, the term Gnostic Bible appeared on the other hand. G. Stromus even points out that uh, it's an exegetical work. The first chapters of the book of Genesis that strongly influenced the rise and the development of Gnosticism. Like Genesis, the Sethians also emphasize the questions of origin. Some authors even point to an obsession uh, Gnostic point to obsession Gnostics in need of understanding how the world came into being in its material form. The first part of the treatise under discussion treat uh, speaks of a general eternal God in his hypostasis, the aeons. The author refers to a mixture of theological methods via negotiationists. He is the one who cannot be seen by any eye. He is the invisible spirit, which cannot be thought of if he were God or something similar than God. An opposition which consists of the grasping oppositions and crossing and opposing qualities. He does not exist in perfection, neither in blessing nor in divinity, because he is something more. It is neither corporeal nor incorporeal. It is neither large nor small. There are positive terms as part of the via analogy, especially at the beginning of Jesus's description of the unknowable God, the monad, power, father, spirit, total protect, perfection, etc. One cannot see via mentitia. The author points out the primacy of God in the casual series as the giver of all good. His eternity gives an eternity. He is life and gives life. He is blessed and gives blessings. And he is gnosis and he gives knowledge. He is good and bestows goodness. And he is merciful and bestows mercy and salvation. He is grace and gives grace, not because he experiences it himself, but he, be, but because he gives immeasurable and inconceivable light. Nevertheless, Jesus concludes his entire presentation by saying, how can I speak to you about him? Which shows great difficulty in speaking about the unspeakable spirit. At this point, it is worth emphasizing the deep connection between Sethian texts of the Apocrypha of John with Platonic thought. However, it is uh, not easy to unequivocally state in which direction this dependence runs. The longest tradition dating back to Irenaeus and Hippolytus. 
Is that Wonder Woman's mom, Hippolytus? <laughs> he <laughs> has the statement that Gnosticism was derived from Platonism in Adversius Heresius. There is a straightforward statement about the plagiarism of Timajos. However, as they learned about uh, the themes in Eastern religions, the mystery current strongly present in Gnosticism, researchers lost confidence of their uniqueness in the relationship to Platonism. The answer to the question of Genesis remains difficult. As many possible ones have emerged. Options and sources are important to the concept of Gnosticism and Platonism, along with the distinctive vision of the Pleroma. And emanation. Uh, you can hit up that featured topic link and find any number of Gnostic episodes where we talk about the Pleroma and the emanations and the Ensof and the original thought and all of, all of this stuff. Remains only one element when reflecting on Sethian cosmology. It is necessary to notice the fundamental process of emanation that causes the stratification of the spiritual or the non-material and the material world. In turn, the model and the primal emanation can be seen in the appearance of Barbello called Pronoia. Enoia and Protonoia. And this is the first power that appeared in the beginning before the full moon and that came into his thoughts. It's light which shines in the reflection of its light. It's perfect power which is the reflection of the invisible virgin spirit who is perfect. He is the first power, the fame of Barbello. Then at Barbello's request, they emit eons and the first, nos the first gnosis, prognosis, indestructibility, uh, eternal life and truth. The space of existence in the autogenesis Christ originates from Barbello, for it was because of this world that a Jesus Christ created everything, the divine born of himself, eternal life, together with the will and the mind, together with the first gnosis, and they set up the glorified and the invisible spirit at Barbello which in turn emanates aeons and wisdom. Sophia appears in the 12th and the last wisdom. Sophia, she decided to reveal the kind of self image, but without the consent of spirit, the side of her male personality did not agree. And she did not find her partner because of the invincible power that is in her. Her thoughts did not remain idle and her perfect creation appeared due to the lack of divine assistance and the lack of truth. And Sophia's thinking Yaldaboath is born who is miscarried and rejected by the mother. It is Sophia's dark thoughts that magnify the puny existence of the Demiurge, despite this disobedience to the one father. She rejected God's sovereignty, and Yaldaboeth began to call herself God. 
taken in more social context. This passage points to the dangerous consequences of disconnection of the feline, the feminine form, the masculine and the detachment of the ma- the male control over the creative reproductive force. It is also of great importance to spot the double betrayal of Scythians by Sophia. In giving birth to Yael de Boath in the first place, she betrayed God, the invisible spirit, violating the harmony of the material world. And secondly, she destroyed the harmony of the relationship, what had been given existence from God which was created to interplay of the male and the female. It turns out that Sophia is a tragic and ambivalent figure and her hideous child does not look like her at all. So check it, check this, the characteristics and the function of Yaldoboath. Her creation changed its appearance to the likeness of a dragon with the head of a lion, and his eyes were like fire, casting lightning, sending out light. This account appears to be the beginning of Yaldoboath's appearance. In the Coptic original, the term Andrikion Eno Emoe appears, which Mauser translates as a dragon with a lion's head. But in the Synapse translation, a serpent with a lion's face appears. That seems to be due to the influence of Berlinius Gnosticus version having the face of a serpent and the face of a lion. The second version evokes interesting references in many researchers. Firstly, this surprising combination of a snake dragon and a lion is read as a reference to Iannis Bifernus, Janus with two, uh, with two faces. Sholem made another observation recalling Oregon, uh, who mocked the worshipers of Yaldoboeth, the lion-like demon, in pointing out to one of the Gnostic amulets that had the name Yaldoboeth and Ariel. Oh, listen, this is what we read about in the first article, written in Greek letters on the obverse uh, figure with the lion's head. Shloem uh, concludes that Ariel, the lion of God in Hebrew, is an older version of the name Yaldoboath. And whoever created this amulet was clearly aware of the original context and the meaning of the name. An important feature of Yaldoboath, as taught by the Apocrypha, is the fundamental opposition antagonism towards God, the Most High. This makes special sense when the Demiurge is related to the remaining aeons and archons who are hierarchically related. The text shows his ignorance of the existence of forces other than those of his mother. He is unaware of this because he thought that there was no other power beyond that of his mother. And looking for the resemblance to his mother, it can be pointed out in Yaldoboath that uh, he inherited was a full measure are all the worst impulses and instincts are wild and willful. And he steals Sophia's power and he runs away uh, from her and sets about creating a world that he will be able to rule according to of our own discretion. It is repulsive, lame, and problematic. Uh, 
it's this is problematic. There is no diversity <laughs> in these mythological creatures. <laughs> the power allowed him by parodying the invisible god to create archons and aeons to help him. He was astonishing in the madness as he found it, and he made himself powers in the Apocrypha, so gives names of these aeons. In addition to them, seven kings are called into existence. According to them, the numbers of heaven as a result, the power split and Yaldoboath becomes the shining darkness. This disease reveals the next names of the Demiurge, Sakalas, the Fool. Samael, the blind god or the god of the blind, to emphasize these divine sense of authority, Eldeboath makes a blasphemous confession. He says, I am God and there is no other god but me. This at once again emphasizes the identification of the demiurge with the biblical god creator. The last important moment in the narrative of the Apocrypha of John, which the main character is Yaldabaoth, is the creation of man. This is another parody of the invisible spirit related to Genesis. And he said to the powers that were with him, come and let us make man in God's image and our likeness that his reflection may become light for us. In this anthropogeny, the Demiurge is given a deceptive task. When it comes to the question of the still dead man, Yaldoboeth breathed his spirit into his face. Come on, COVID-19, bro, wear a mask. It's problematic because Yaldoboeth is not wearing a mask and he is breathing all over every people. Anyhow, this breathed spirit was his mother's power and he did not know it he uh, exists in ignorance his mother his mother's power went out from Yaldoboath into a psychic body which they prepared according to the image of the one that existed from the beginning and it turned out that the ruse was taken in the power of his mother the deception led to deep antagonism on the part of Yaldoboath Understood narrowly as an enemy of the God creator of the Mosaic tradition, he becomes not only a cosmic opponent of the invisible spirit, the source of existence, the goodness, but also takes a hostile attitude towards man created by him and by trickery deprived him of light and greatness and power. All right, well, I'm just going to uh, breeze through this summary here. The Sethian's concept of the Demiurge, which expresses the figure of Yaldoboath, is primarily an attempt to reconcile and reconcile two categories. The cosmos was born of corruption and error and equally important. The image of the created world that becomes an image of the likeness of the divine world, the Pleroma. Demiurge is also an idea that binds Sethian text because it answers the question about the source of the world in a material, inferior, fucked up 
version. As a result, it is it forces the reinterpretation of the traditions included in the first chapters of the book of Genesis, but also calls for an in-depth reflection on the situation of man in anticipation for overcoming the demiurge's reign. The depreciation of the biblical tradition and the God of the Bible obviously has its origins in radical dualism, which at the same time causes a deep conflict with the mainstream of Orthodox Judaism and Christianity. Nevertheless, the idea of the Demiurge, whatever name the Gnostics give him, even in re-edited Christianized treatises, uh, is not a type of antichrist, but rather a counterfeit of God. The statement directs the intuition showing unequivocal hostility towards the jealous God, but also his exclusive followers identified with uh, Orthodox Jews and Christians, as it turns out. Uh, that the deep and insurmountable difference between Sethians uh, and not representative of strict monotheism lies not so much in examining and discovering the measure of evil hidden in the created world and the vile conditions of human existence in this evil material world, but rather in pointing out the answer to the questions about the source of this state of affairs. When the Orthodox thinking of the people of the Bible sees its cause in man and its freedoms in rejecting divine rights and laws. Sethians see the answer for this tension and jealousy that is born on the line secret man and the demiurge. This makes it possible to state with full force that the essence of Sethian Gnosticism includes not only um the reference to the biblical descriptions of the beginning, but also the whole thinking originating from the Old Testament Judaism and pre-Testament literature. It seems much more difficult to clearly access the role of the Christian thought and the creativity in order, uh, in effort, intellectual Sethian. But on the other hand, the analysis of the ideas of Yaldabaoth present in the Apocrypha of John is an important example of searching for an answer to the question about the relationship of these type of religiosity and the late antiquity. Thank you very much. This has been the Abercast, and I've been John Towers. Check out Abercast.com, feature topic link, the storefront, sign into the newsletter, and uh, yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode. Send an email or visit us on social media to let us know what you think about this topic. And please remember to leave a five-star rate and review. Hey, did you learn something? Did you laugh? Supporting me is a way for you to be a part of the Abercast and ensure its growth and sustainability. It also means I can create a normal schedule for shows and bonus shows, as well as the exclusive fellow craft episodes. By supporting the show, you are not only a listener, but you are a part of the show. You supporting the show gives me a way to offer fun rewards as a thank you for showing your appreciation 
and support for our projects. Do you have an idea for a reward that you don't see? Let me know. My supporters are my partners. I currently pay for you to listen to the Abercast. Not only do I pay the hosting bills out of my own pocket, I volunteer my time and uh, talent to each and every episode of the Abercast. The price of books, the time and resources of reading and researching, the massive amounts of gin and tonic needed, the equipment it takes to record the shows, the time and resources it takes to create the bonus material, and the cost to maintain the internet presence. Is it worth your support? I don't know. I am proud of the Abercast, and I feel like I'm improving all the time. In addition uh, to creating the show that you dig, and that you are excited about, I also have a full-time commitment and other obligations. So why financial support? All of the supporters help me focus my time in on the quality and development of the podcast. And what if you can't afford, you know, $1 or $3 or $10 or whatever a month? Believe me, I get that. There are many degrees of support, but if you can't support the show financially, please consider leaving a five-star rate and review on your preferred podcast app. And don't forget that you could sign into the mailing list and still unlock a lot of bonus content. Thank you. I cannot put into words how much it means to me that you listen to the show each time I post a new episode. Your feedback, support, and love of the stories that we talk about here is what keeps me going. 